Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. Today, we look at some of the issues influencing the upcoming presidential election and how those issues and the election itself may impact investment strategies. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator. Our guest is Bill O'Grady, Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist. There certainly are some issues in the news right now that may influence the election, but before we get to those, let's examine some which might be in the eyes of the public on the back burner right now, but which still may be very influential. Bill, first of all, as you've mentioned in your yearly outlook, the election this year may draw an unusual amount of interest from foreign countries and entities, even more than some past elections. Why do you feel this way? Uh, There are two reasons. First, America's superpower role means that the president has power to affect other nations. Second, and more critical, the U.S. is changing its role. It is unclear if the role will be completely abandoned or adjusted, but being able to influence that outcome is attractive for foreign nations. Well, what, what can the investor watch for to, to help determine whether foreign interests are having an outsized impact on the election? That will be difficult. We do expect social media to be the primary, but not the only, conduit of influence. A more traditional path is to influence reporters through cultivating relationships and through lobbying Congress. But social media gives political actors the ability to directly affect the electorate. We would expect Russia to support chaos. China will likely try to burnish its reputation and discredit figures who disparage Beijing. The problem for observers is that not all unrest will be Russian-supported and not all supportive comments about China will necessarily be coming from Beijing. Perhaps the most important factor for investors to remember is that foreigners are attempting to influence outcomes and to simply be aware. In your written reports, Bill, you examine several economic and cultural trends which may have the power to sway the electorate. And one issue you look at is the public's traditional acceptance of and tolerance for publicly financed projects. For example, the public pays taxes imposed by the government to finance broad services. For instance, we citizens finance schools, mostly through property taxes that everybody pays, even though not all taxpayers have children who attend public schools. What are some other examples? Public goods are an example of what economists call market failure. One of the bedrocks of capitalism is that the process of setting interest to get interest leads to the best possible outcome for society. But for that to work, goods have to be such that they can be excludable. In other words, when I sell something to you, that good is now usable only to the buyer. But in a public good, once the good is produced, everyone benefits because it cannot be excluded. There are other government goods provided that are considered partial public goods. This happens in a dual system of public and private education. The real key is that some people benefit more from the provision of a public good than others will. And this difference is affected by the relative power or influence they have. What inequities can this system of public finance create? 
Well, there is a tendency to try and get others to provide a public good that I benefit from. For example, if I like cycling, I may benefit if everyone supports rails to trails. If I don't cycle or use the facility, I may not support my taxes to fund such public goods. This situation is often seen in school funding. Those with school-aged children tend to support school funding. Once the kids finish primary and secondary education, they often cool to funding such endeavors. Do you think, in light of the pandemic, that there is less tolerance or perhaps more tolerance today for publicly financed projects? It may be more about the incidence of policy. There is a real concern that policies designed to combat the pandemic may generate more costs for some and more benefits for others. If I can work from home and am in a high-risk group, I benefit greatly from the shutdowns. If I'm young and can't work from home, shutdowns may be more costly to me than the risk of the virus. Under conditions of general distrust of government, there are reasonable concerns that I may be asked to bear higher costs than others of a policy and may not be compensated for the difference. So it may not necessarily be opposition to a school bond, but more about worries that those in power may take advantage of me. How might this play out in the election? If you are in a group that feels out of power, elections can either generate apathy or zero-sum behavior. If my candidate choice is restricted and nothing is likely to change regardless of who wins, it makes sense that I may not care or may not vote. But if the differences are stark, it may energize me to believe that if my preferred candidate loses, it will be a catastrophe. Let me, let me ask it another way. Do you think that there may be rising anger about perceived unfairness in the distribution of goods and services, which may influence the election? Yes, precisely. Bill, you also write about the complicated subject of class identity and tribalism in the American electorate. Basically, we, we do tend to align with those we agree with. Factors include, well, there are a lot of them, income, geography, religion, race, some combination of these, as well as other factors. And you discuss these groupings in some detail in your geopolitical report dated May 18th, including how groupings are absorbed into political parties. I realize this issue is complex, but my question's a simple one anyway. Are there changes afoot in the way American voters identify ourselves, which may influence this presidential election? I think it's less about how we define our identity and more about what party we affiliate with based upon those identities. In general, people know who they are. However, the party coalitions that represent them is something much different. There are terms used such as rhino and dino, which to suggest that there are real Republicans or real Democrats. But in reality, a two-party system is a system of coalitions that change over time. There really is no party identity. Instead, parties are coalitions of identity groups. Do changes that are in process now favor one political party over the other? At this point, neither party has been able to create a lasting and stable coalition that has been able to dominate for any long period of time. What I have observed is that since the end of the Cold War, pundits argue that each election signals a new coalition alignment. What history shows that these alignments have proved to be specific to a candidate, and the alignment tends to end once that candidate leaves the scene. So at this point, the electorate is more of a jump ball. 
How about the environment for third-party candidates? Do current conditions favor the rise of third-party candidates? They do, although throughout history, strong third-party candidate coalitions tend to be co-opted by the major parties. The last time we actually saw a full breakdown of a political party was when the Whigs devolved. The Northern Whigs became the GOP and the Southern Whigs went into the political wilderness during the Civil War. How might changes that are happening now potentially impact the investment world? My greatest worry is that we are evolving into a situation where we see significant policy changes with each election. Businesses are not going to be sure if policy today won't radically change in a few years. This issue makes long-term investing impossible for firms, and many are forced to guess what the future will look like. But it is quite possible that what looks like a prudent investment today may look foolish in a year or so. Before we go today, can you consider the two major events in the news right now, the the coronavirus and, and the protests over racial injustice? What's the potential that these events will contribute significantly to the way some people and some groups may perceive unfairness and have uh, an outsized impact on election day. Unfairness is being felt throughout American society. This sentiment came into sharp relief in the 2008 financial crisis and the recovery and expansion didn't really dampen those feelings. The pandemic has added to the perception and the protests are another feature of that sense of unfairness. In terms of the election, there are probably two major concerns. The first is, if policies change, who bears the cost of adjustment? And for those who bear it, how will they respond? The second element is, how does the current turmoil affect turnout? Do these currently protesting decide to express their anger at the ballot box, or do they figure that voting is futile? And for those who fear they will be burdened by the cost of adjustment, does it affect their voting behavior? These are unknowns we'll be watching in the coming weeks as the election approaches. Okay. Thank you, Bill. Uh, This has been the Confluence of Ideas featuring Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. In our next podcast, we might take a further look at this particular subject, the major events that are in the news right now. We'll keep abreast of them and we'll discuss other influences on the presidential election, including social media. And, of course, how investment strategy might be impacted. For more resources, we point you to confluenceinvestment.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ConfluenceIM. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. And this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.